0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Oh, I am to try to get this mic right. Too hot, too hot. I don't know. If you're watching live, just let me know if you're coming in too hot, if you can hear me. Uh, I'm in Thailand right now. Well, oh, let me move this mic. Let me just get this set up correctly. Okay. I assume the sound is working fine right now. Um, so I'm in Thailand right now. Uh, you are probably hearing the sound of a monsoon storm thing. Um, but I I've basically uh, put off doing this for like three weeks in a row. And I'm like I can't let a storm be the reason why I don't do this. Um, so a couple quick things. If you do, if you haven't tuning into these live, I apologize that I haven't been on for three weeks. I had an excuse where I was traveling a lot. I was on the west coast, of the United States, where the original time of this was a lot earlier than I'm used to. Um, but honestly, I think one of the reasons why I haven't done this, I haven't done a, an episode of these in a while is that I was kind of confronted by the topic and I didn't realize it. So I've mentioned in other videos that I was in a sex cult for a few years. Um, and yeah, I just it's, it's like a sensitive thing to talk about, even though I've talked about it a lot. So I've been putting this video off, but I finally want to speak about it today. Um, <clears throat> before I jump in, a couple quick announcements or just uh, recaps of things. Uh, the men's group in LA was super awesome. If you live in LA, Los Angeles... It's still going on, so I highly recommend you check it out. Um, the guy who runs it is in the Mask and Underground Facebook group, so you can find his contact info. Reach out to him. Show up to that. We had a really great discussion um, that night, and I, you know, I assume they're continuing uh, awesome, great discussions every Tuesday. Um, yeah, and then oh yeah, my other thing from a few weeks ago, I put out an open invitation to anybody who wants to hang out with me in Thailand. I'm here from now. November 4th, November 3rd till February. This is not a pitch for a course or anything. It's not like a program, but basically I'm hanging out in Thailand for a while. I know a lot of people who follow me or you're connected with me are interested in living like some sort of nomadic lifestyle, having an adventurous life, becoming a coach, maybe stuff like that. And I was thinking like the best way I can serve such people and the most fun way to serve such people is basically hang out with them while they start their journey. So this doesn't mean you have to quit your job, but maybe you, you already want to. If you want to come hang out with me in Thailand, um, we'll just hang out and I'll give you pointers. And uh, I'm moving into a big house with my girlfriend. We don't have space to put a bunch of people up, but I will be hanging out all the time. I'm setting up an archery range and a gymnastics setup. And um, there will be many philosophical discussions by the bonfire, which anyone is in- welcome to join. Anyone who's, like, into the stuff that I'm into, which I assume if you're watching this, you are, or listening to this. Um, All right, so jumping into the sex cult thing. um, If you've been following my stuff, you may have heard me mention that I was in a sex cult. I actually meant to make this video years ago, or make this, this will also be a podcast, years ago, when I was in a BuzzFeed video um, about ex-cult members, and I really wanted to do that then because... They had cut me in with these two women who were born into cults and had really, really horrible experiences. Like, they were molested and all this stuff. And then they would cut to me where I'm talking about, like, stroking women's clitorises. And just – I thought I, I thought it was edited really weirdly to make me look like this – I don't know. So I decided I wanted to tell the whole story. But honestly, back then I got confronted by it too, and I just didn't do it. This uh, this last week in, when I was in Los Angeles, very randomly – Adam Padilla, who has a big YouTube channel, <coughs> excuse me, reached out to me about um, uh, being a guest on his show because he's also doing a video on ex cult members. And his was a lot; it was a lot more. It's, I mean, I haven't seen it yet, but it, it was seemed to be a lot more lighthearted and fun. And I think he's portraying me in the light that I meant to be portrayed, which is, I was in a sex cult for two years. I saw some weird stuff. Weird things happened. Um, there were some negative negatives, obviously, with brainwashing, but I had an overall positive experience. It's largely shaped who I am and largely shaped a lot of my work, and you know, I don't have any issue um, giving credit where it's due. So I want to tell the entire story here, and it'd be fun to do this live. So I know uh, usually there's like a few minute delay on the comments, but uh, if you're watching this live and you have a question, feel free to interrupt me, and I'm happy to go on tangents. I don't have this really planned out. I'm kind of going to riff because obviously I know my life story. Um, So this might be a long video. I might break it up into a couple parts, but let's see what happens. So I think to start to make this all make sense, I do need to tell a little bit about my background. Um, I grew up with a lot of social anxiety, and the reason why because um, I'm writing a book about this, and uh, some of my earlier writing teachers have said to me it's not clear why I would put myself through this situation. Um, So I've I realized I need to kind of explain who I am and where I come from. I grew up with a ton of social anxiety, uh, super like shy. I felt like I was living in a prison most of my youth. And uh, uh, so that that's what got me into self-development. I started listening to S- Eckhart Tolle and I got me into what would eventually become the pickup community. and got me into weightlifting and uh, sparked my interest in MMA and martial arts and, and pretty much any, any um, opportunity to – put in effort and energy and time and sometimes money and you can get a, a net positive result. So I would lift weights. I get muscular. Okay, great. I had a better body. Awesome. Uh, I could learn pickup skills and okay, great. I can talk to girls now and they can maybe like me better. Uh, I could get more respect from people. And like that was kind of like my, my mind from adolescence where I was really depressed through college into my early twenties. But something and then I was uh, a huge fan of Tim Ferriss. I, the four-hour work week was my Bible. Every, every half hour of my day from when I woke up to when I went to bed was optimized for productive efficiency. And basically what had happened over this time is I had experienced a lot of benefits from being like this self-improvement obsessed person. But um, I kind of disregarded the importance of feeling. I had this like uh, no pain, no gain attitude. I, I always forced myself to do more more at the gym, more like I'd forced myself to approach women even when I really didn't feel like it. I, I'd force everything. And what had happened over time is I had disconnected from my feelings. And I'm gonna I'm just going through this quickly to explain what drew me to the sex cult in the first place. I um I recognized I I started to feel dead inside already. Um, I was dating someone who was a drug addict and I was doing a lot of drugs, but honestly, like my my main issue was I was just feared up and I was disconnected from my own feelings. And uh, if, if you follow my arousal control stuff, um, you, you've heard the longer version of the story, which is I developed erectile dysfunction at the age of 23 as a symptom of the fact that I was so disconnected from my feelings. And I was so uh, cut off from sensation. I was so in my head. I was looking at everything um, as like debits and credits or like every every decision I made would come down to like expected value calculations and stuff like that. Anyway, I realized something was wrong, especially when my dick didn't work. And I had, um, being a self-help junkie, I'd watched a ton of TED talks. And there was this one TED talk that I'd seen maybe 50 times about female orgasm. It was titled um, "Orgasm: The Cure to the Hunger of the Western Woman." It was by this woman named Nicole Daydon. It was on TEDx Women in San Francisco. I thought it was amazing. Like something, something was touched in me. I was like man, this is such an interesting idea that sexuality, this thing that I felt I didn't have enough of, right, being a shy person, uh, especially, you know, growing up, you don't meet a lot of women when you're when you're afraid to talk to people. Um, and so obviously sex doesn't happen a lot or it didn't happen as much as I wanted it to. I was definitely in scarcity in that area of my life and many areas. It was so interesting that it was like combining like sexuality and spirituality, which is so interesting to me. Flash forward a little bit. Um, I just got laid off from my last corporate job. I decided I wanted to do the four-hour work week and start my own lifestyle business. I didn't know what to do. I tried a, I tried a million things, which I'm not going to get into. But then that company that the woman who made that TED Talk is called One Taste. It is called One Taste. She, um, or uh, the company moved to New York. They're based in San Francisco. I was living in Manhattan in New York. They happened to set up a branch in New York. And it, to me, it felt like a sign from God, like, or a sign from the universe. Like this thing that I had been following from afar online, Happened to set up shop like four blocks away from my apartment. Obviously, I had to check it out. And around this time, this was a little bit after Occupy Wall Street. This is uh, 2013. I got laid off from my job around Occupy Wall Street. So I was like very inspired. Not even inspired by Occupy Wall Street, but like I was ruminating a lot on the idea of society can be set up better than it is. This is all important for the cult stuff. So apologies if this seems like a long meandering way to start. Um so I was, like, theorizing of, like, a society that was based on, like, more real values, not like the, the consumerist society that we live in that I view as a prisoner's dilemma, like, where uh, you kind of are incentivized to screw, screw each other over um, for your own uh, security, where people have to hoard money and hoard wealth and live in tiny boxes on this island in Manhattan, paying way too much, working many hours doing stuff you hate to pay for stuff you don't need. Like, that kind of thing was in my head. I also read this book, Sex at Dawn, which is like a, an anthropological book, an anthropology argument for uh, polyamory or non-monogamy. And I was um, really into this idea of like redesigning a society where people shared everything. It was egalitarian, where emotions were valued, where people can be themselves, where um, we can pool our resources and support each other so we don't have to pay ridiculous New York rent, working ridiculous jobs that don't provide a real value to humanity. Anyway, I was very idealistic. One taste happened to show up in New York, and they basically lived by those values. They believed in play over work. It was a very female-centric um, society. Which, not that I was trying to live in a world that was necessarily you know better for women. Not that I was anti-feminist. You know, I'm, I'm all for women's rights. But the fact that it was female-centric was really interesting to me because. I had viewed and I still view that a lot of the negatives of like our consumer society do come from a hyper masculine society. And obviously I'm not anti-masculine, obviously, but a lot of the things that are bad in the world on a macro level are kind of testosterone fueled traits, like the fact that we hoard wealth and that we're constantly in competition and that we have to it's it's normal to work 50 hours or more a week. Um, like this idea of production, production, production is a very male-centric. Uh, paradigm like if the world was run by women we probably wouldn't have the work weeks we have we probably wouldn't have i mean we probably wouldn't have advanced in technology the way we have but we also would maybe be closer to nature so this is where my head was at i signed up for this coaching program um which put me in debt right away because it was fifteen thousand dollars when i was in the buzzfeed video on cults they made a huge deal about the fifteen thousand dollar uh course but like honestly looking back it was one of the best $15,000 investments ever made in my life. It was a coaching program that didn't just like give me coaching skills. I think that's very minimal. Like a lot of guys ask me, like, do I need to get a coaching certification to become a coach? I say, no, I mean, you need to go out and help people and work on yourself and that's what makes you a coach. But that's, that's kind of what the coaching program did for me. It gave me entry into this like secret cult world where I got to really work on myself in an intensive way and learn some, like, learn some skills about reading people and, empathy and reading women in intimate situations but also just reading like you know helping men uh, speaking it did a lot for me and getting in touch with my intuition and that was what made uh, me good at being a coach later on so anyway i uh, along with joining the coaching program um they had a, so one taste had these residences they don't anymore and then like they're, they're kind of barely a company anymore and i'll get into that later probably today um but they used to have these residences where a bunch of people would live in a place. Like in San Francisco, they had a place on Folsom Street um, where they had 60 bedrooms. I think 60 bedrooms or 60 people? I th- might have been 30 bedrooms, 60 people. But basically part of it was that you shared a bed with a member, usually of the opposite sex. or You'd always share a bed with them, um, someone with the opposite polarity. So given that it was a female-centric organization, there weren't a lot of gay men there. But there were a lot of lesbians or... You know bisexual women and sometimes you'd have women sleep together because there were more women than men in this situation but it was usually like a very masculine like kind of butch woman with a a cis hetero woman or um or or you would have a man and a woman sharing a bed part of this was that their take on growth was that you grow through what they call compression which is a term borrowed from hot yoga if you do bikram yoga or anything like that where they say like the compression is what makes you grow like you compress yourselves in these shapes and then you relax and then that's what allows you to expand it would take that as an analogy where um you, you would be compressed into these uncomfortable situations like you'd share a bed with a stranger maybe a stranger who has like certain traits that trigger you and you'd have to work through that and that's what forced you to grow i think there's a lot of truth to that in fact Pretty much everything they believed in are still things that, on a on a general level, at least on a superficial level, I believe in. Like, does compression make you grow? Does does hard stuff, does strenuous work make you grow? Absolutely. A lot of the things that they did, they took a very true statement like that and then kind of twisted it, and that's how they controlled people. But I'll get into that later. So, when they moved to New York, um, they set up a residence in Harlem. Uh, It was a couple penthouses, very nice apartment. Um, but they also did the same thing where they packed a lot of people into a small space. So I lived on a four-person bunk bed. Uh, it was myself and a woman uh, on the top bunk and then a guy and a girl at the bottom bunk. And at, at its peak, there were 26 of us packed into nine bedrooms, basically. Again, for compression, but also to save rent. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's always multiple reasons for everything. Like, that's what, that's one, thing, one of the reasons why I really wanted to make this. I apologize if I'm talking too fast. I realize I'm excited. I'll take a uh, sip and slow down um one of the reasons why i really wanted to like have this long form uh talk about my sex cult experience is that a lot of the media i've been in takes sound bites and stuff and like that's great and like there's you know i think adam Padilla is probably editing me in a way that is uh congruent with my message and i was in bloomberg news speaking about my cult experience and they, i think they were great in terms of integrity with my quotes but because they were just taking sound bites from me, I feel like most people don't really understand the nuances of a cult experience. At least I can only speak for mine. I've only been in one cult. But um, with everything, there were always multiple reasons. So someone can't just say, oh, that's bad, it's a cult. Or that's good, it's an organization, it's kind of culty, though. It's like everything had layers, and every single thing had a lot of positives and a lot of negatives and a lot of in between. So, like, you know, the, like, so like, it's not enough to say, I'm not saying that the ends justifies the means because a lot of people did get hurt. I mean, I, I was one of the lucky ones, but what I'm saying is that um, everything had multiple means. Like the reason why they packed so many of us into a small apartment, or they they you know, they piled a lot of us together. Was to probably to save money because we all were paying rent and none of us, you know, a lot of us didn't have jobs, which I'll get into in a second too. But there's also the the true benefit is that when you are forced into a small space with people who are talking about their emotions, emotions come up and you have to work through things. So it was both. So anyway, uh, starting in 2013, uh, 2012 when I found them, starting in 2013, uh, I moved into this orgasm residence. That's what it was called. Part of being in this house was you had to do this practice called orgasmic meditation. So I should probably explain what that is. This was like their main thing that one taste taught. Like most cults have like a main exercise that binds everyone together. So in Scientology, it was auditing. If you've seen going clear, it was a, you know, I don't know exactly what what it was. I wasn't in Scientology, but basically someone would uh, help you work through your emotional things. And you had your thumbs on a, on like a a gal, galvan galvan i forget what it's called half of a lie detector test and like anyway like that was their thing um the transcendental meditation people had um tm which was their thing they were also they're um, they're also very culty and a lot of cults actually copy their models including one taste if you hear animals in the background i'm in thailand so there's chickens running around so you might hear a rooster um and uh you know every every cult every organization has a thing and actually this is one of my points is that a lot of organizations that we don't call cults need some sort of unifying exercise or ideology for it to make sense otherwise it wouldn't organize but maybe i'll leave that till the end because i do think countries organizations teams political parties they all operate exactly like cults do they're just a collective agreement that we all put together because that's one thing like a lot of people will say like Oh, when did you join one taste or is that person in or out one taste and it's like it's never a, that clear of a thing where it's like it's not like you get a passport and like oh now i'm in the, now i'm in the cult now i'm out of the cult no the cult exists in your mind it's a collective agreement you're in it if you believe in the collective reality that the cult is is portraying you're not in it if you don't believe in it it's that it's 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 like that it's not like you know being in a certain location in the world or you know there's no membership card for cults typically Uh, some cults have like a high level payment program. Anyway, I'm jumping around, but that's, that's one thing I wanted to get across. So I moved into this cult house into the residence and, um, oh, so their whole thing was a based around orgasmic meditation. That was their practice. So orgasmic meditation is, um, a modification of an older tantra like practice from, uh, that was originated in the sixties, but, uh, the founder of my cult, Nicole modified it to make it more marketable specifically to women, because if you've ever dabbled in Tantra or any of these like sex positive type things, I mean, a lot of the times uh, women can be uncomfortable when, when there's like a community that's talking about sex. As far as I know, one taste is the only matriarchal cult uh, that has been popular in the modern era. And one of the things they did really well specifically because they had a female guru female founder was that they made it really female friendly. So he had all these women who were really comfortable being sexual and expressing their sexuality, which was from a purely like Machiavellian marketing perspective. Brilliant because once you have a bunch of attractive women being open to their sexuality, all the men obviously come and everyone else comes and and certainly no pun intended. I hate when people make cum puns. Anyway, didn't mean to do that. Um, So anyway, this practice was a 15 minute practice uh, and it's 15 minutes for a reason and there's a structure to it to allow specifically the woman to feel safe and i actually i you know people i think this is another thing that get confuses people when i speak about the cult i actually believe in the practice and i believe in a lot of what they taught i still teach a lot of what they taught i just changed i take away the brainwashing language i mean this practice is kind of like a, a light tantra practice where so i'm getting bitten by mosquitoes <clears throat> uh, a woman lies down um, keeps everything on her except for uh, her bottoms and a man strokes her clitoris in a prescribed fashion. It's always the same way. It's, it's the same way so that she never feels surprised. She always feels safe. And the purpose of it is not to get her off. It's for that both her and the, and the person stroking her, it could be a man or a woman stroking her. They both can tune into the sensations between them and that's what develops intuition. So a bit of an aside, because it's very relevant to my current work. <clears throat> I mean, this is the only skill I believe when it comes to sexual connection, when it comes to intimate communication, like if you can have so much attention, and this might sound familiar if you are taking any of my courses, if you pay attention to somebody, even if you're not touching them, they will give you sense, they will give you feedback that your subconscious mind can process a lot faster than your conscious mind. So if you're looking at someone and thinking, or if you're on a date with a woman, and you're like, oh, if she touches your hair three times, she's into me, or any of those stupid tells you see in those like top 10 magazines. That's not going to help you because you're going to be in your head even if it's accurate. The thing that allows you to have, you know, perfect intuition and like know how to escalate intimately or read someone or communicate with someone so they feel comfortable is that you need to turn off that part of your mind where that's constantly judging. Pay attention though, pay attention and then allow your feelings to read their feelings and, you know, our subconscious mind can make near nearly perfectly accurate reads on people i mean if you've read the book blink by malcolm gladwell or uh, thinking fast and slow by david david daniel daniel kahneman um they they go into that like our our subconscious mind can process a lot of information this is specifically true with uh social communication it's also very true with sexual touch so the whole thing with like when a when a, a man has spent a lot of time really paying attention to the sensation between himself and the sexual organs of a woman who's also paying attention. Like, it really is a meditation. People think it's crazy. It, maybe it is crazy. It's, it is strange. This is why I called had to do it. But it I, I believe it's very legitimate. And it, like anytime someone asks me for sexual advice or performance advice, I will turn them to the, these concepts, if not the actual activity. So anyway, this is how it's part of my – it's a primary part of my education. Every morning at 7 a.m. living in the orgasm residence, it was mandatory that we – do this practice twice every morning. So the night before, people in the house would like be like, hey, will you be my first partner? Will you be my second partner? Will you be my one or two? And then 7 a.m. to 7.30, um, I would wake up and I would stroke two different women's genitals in this prescribed meditative fashion. The purpose not to be romantic or even sexual, I know it sounds weird, but it wasn't even meant to be sexual. It was meant to be a meditation on sensation. This activity is what bound, uh, bound the community because everyone in the house did it together. And there's a greater ohm um, community throughout New York City, which had a few hundred people into it. in it where twice a week in the evenings we'd all meet up and kind of like a yoga class, there'd be a facilitator and they would guide everyone through this orgasmic meditation practice. I guess I should comment why I have black nails. Um, it was just Halloween and my girlfriend painted my nails. That's it, in case you're wondering. Um, if you did catch my, my Instagram video where I had black nails, ironically, I was also on this island in Thailand back then. But that was you know, totally random. Um, <clears throat> so I moved into this house, and I immediately started to notice things were weird. Even though I wanted to have this adventure, I wanted to have this uh, – I wanted to do something crazy. I just was having an existential crisis. I wanted to join the Hell's Angels or sell drugs or something. I needed, like, some sort of adventure. I wanted to break out of the Matrix. And this definitely was a break from the Matrix because there are all these people speaking. They would use this um, different terminology, which I hadn't heard before. Like, even the word orgasm would get twisted. Um and, and I'll get into that in a second. Uh, but basically, I was like, what the hell? Like, everyone's talking about energy here. Everyone's talking about, like, this, like, very. Because, like, the way that One Taste per- portrayed itself, it seemed like a very legitimate. And I mean, it seemed like a very uh, normal sexual wellness company that taught workshops. But once I moved into the house, they started talking about all this, like, magical, witchy stuff. Like, they would actually use the word, all the women would refer to themselves as witches. Um, <clears throat> they would like talk about magic and like everyone would take their tarot cards real seriously. And everyone was talking about energy is like, well, I could feel your energy and this and that. And we would do these like secret classes where, <clears throat> excuse me. um, I don't think he, he'd mind me saying this. I If you, if you listen to my podcast, you, you may have heard the episode with Ken Blackman. Ken Blackman was the head instructor uh, of them at the time. And he would teach these uh, things called stroker clinics where he'd basically teach us like the real ins and outs of, of this organic meditation uh, practice and they would speak about in a way they wouldn't speak about it publicly they would talk about how um this is how you get your energy to fill the room or this is how you get your energy to fill this person and and like this one time i was angry at this guy I, i was we had this like i was basically jealous of this dude and um Ken was like, "Oh, well, you're blocking him from your energy." Like they would speak about it in this like level of precision and it was like very strange for me because obviously I'd heard hippies talk about energy and stuff, but here were these people who seemed very rational speaking about energy in like this very precise way of like how energy was moving in a room and how energy and it's like it totally was like what the hell are these people talking about? Like it was a totally different reality and it bugged me out for a while. But eventually I was like uh and I was uh, here's the part where it was scary was that I was afraid – this is the, the moment where I was afraid I was being brainwashed because my perceptions of reality were starting to change because I was in this house where everyone was perceiving magic and stuff. And then there was the real world that I was from where you don't – like no one talks about magic and energy and stuff. So I was like in this middle place of like in this house with people talking about magic. I don't want to be disconnected. But I was like, you know what? I'm in this weird reality. If I don't go into it, I'm never going to experience whatever benefits lie for me there. And if I go the other way, I'll just live the same mundane, frustrating life I've always had. It's like, you know what? I'm going to go in for a year. I said, I'm, I'm going to put myself in this weird reality and like, buy into everything for a year and then see what happens. So I did that. And as I surrendered, you know, I mean, not, I'm not going to put quotes on it. As I surrendered to this reality and I actually accepted this call to adventure, a lot of things changed in my life. One, I started to tune into stuff I hadn't tuned into before and part of my work in there, and since then, has been like trying to demystify these mystical concepts. Like when you talk about energy and magic, it's obviously it sounds super vague, and uh, you know it, it leaves it leaves a, a wide margin for magical thinking and error and confirmation bias. What I started to do when I was in the cult was like try to come up with the actual rational explanation for why I can feel how a woman wants to be touched without asking her. Like those things, I think that's a separate subject. I mean, I've spoken about this with Omra Pani on the podcast. There is – basically, it was what I was saying before. Like, we can read each other with near-perfect accuracy if we could turn off our judging mind and just pay attention to someone's feelings. Anyway, uh, so anyway, I, I, go, I went into the cult, and I decided not only was I in the cult now, I was actually buying into the reality because I wanted to see what was there. And um, a lot of things sh- changed for me. My intuition, like, suddenly spiked. Like, I was the kind of guy who – I've I, at, at parties, I would have to force myself to smile because I just never felt – it's not that I didn't have emotions, it's I never showed my emotions. I was very cut off, which is why I had erectile dysfunction. I'll get back to that in a second. Um, but I was very cut off from emotions, and uh, I would always negate any emotional impulses that I had. You'll probably hear that chicken. He agrees with me. Um, so, uh, but that's basically what intuition is, is recognizing the feelings you have, the sensations, and being able to draw the information from it. So, like, you get this random feeling of, like, oh, I need to, I need to go here, or I need, or, like, I'll say in sex, it's like the obvious, like, or it's the most uh, observable, like, you have this intuition, like, I need to close the distance between us right now, or I need, to, she wants me to kiss her right now, and you just listen to that, and when you've worked on this for a while, you can realize that your intuitions are very accurate, but it takes training, which is why, oh, excuse me, sorry, I keep getting excited, um, <clears throat> uh, which is why the orgasm meditation worked. But anyway, as I d- bought into this cult reality, I started to notice that my intuition became very precise, because for the first time in my life, I wasn't discounting my random feelings as useless or stupid or whatever. Um, and, uh, and a lot, I mean, I started attracting a lot of women and part of it, part of it was that I was becoming emotionally vulnerable for the first time. Like I had done pickup stuff for many years before that, but a lot of it was like, I tr- I thought I always did pick up in a, in an authentic way anyway but the truth is a lot of it is like was for show it was like i was forced i was like forcing myself to be a certain way like i was trying to do these things because i thought that's what women would like so even though i wasn't like using canned routines it still was inauthentic which is why i think i cut off from my feelings and eventually got a sexual dysfunction from it in one case all of this went away so that i was actually connecting i was also vulnerable and the truth is this was a community where women were also very forward this is a quick aside which was interesting from a sociological perspective because women were the ones that had more power in this in this subculture, and they had more positions of power, and they were very safe to be sexually free. A lot of women, for the first time, would be very forward with their sex. They'd be like, "I wanna, I wanna sleep with this guy." Or like, "Hey, do you wanna sleep with me?" Or "Hey, do you wanna do this?" Like, in a way that you would never see from women in conventional society. And because there's so much sex like available for many guys they became kind of docile. It's like, you know, stop, it's like, stop asking me for, like, I don't want to touch, like, just leave me alone. And it's like this flip of, of like, of what we see as gender roles when it comes to sex in traditional society where, where um, men are chasing after sex and women are like guarding it or trying to protect it. Here in this, in one case, it was flip mm-hmm. because he had all these, first you had more women than men in the society. The women were very sexually forward. And like, so a guy who was like halfway decent, attractive, it's like, he's always like trying to like, just leave me alone i need my personal space so it's very interesting and i honestly i think that helped me um reframe a lot of old belief patterns i had around women and, and like and sexuality and stuff um so anyway that also changed my life and um and i will say quickly through being emotionally vulnerable in this safe space and doing this orgasm meditation practice and having a lot of emotionally safe interactions with women eventually my emotional walls came down and those emotional walls was what were what was preventing me from having a healthy arousal response in my body so within a month or so my i, I kicked my viagra dependency and i was able to have a normal to great sex afterwards but that was like that was like a pretty small part because like the the real opening for me was that i was accessing confidence that i never had before like what was great about one taste in that world was that because it was so different than the conventional world where like there were bullies and my friends would criticize me and like people laugh at you, like in the, in the one taste subculture, everything was safe. Like if you had a weird desire, if you had weird fears, if you had insecurities, if you had shame, you could talk about everything and no one would shame you. Like that was part of the ethos in this community. Like you can just like air everything out and like people would still love you as a person, which, Was so healing for me because I could actually like, I felt like I could spread my wings for the first time, and that's when I started like really writing and expressing myself, and um, eventually became a coach. So there were layers to this, though. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip forward because I know I don't want to make this a 20 hour video. Um, Oh, and also if you're watching, I can see that people are actually watching live. I guess whatever delay. If you have questions, pop them in there. I'm happy to go on tangents. I think I'm pretty sure I'm gonna do this in multiple parts, probably in two parts. Um, so I'm just gonna let myself go on these tangents because I think they're interesting and important. Um, about six months in, I had risen in notoriety within the New York community because I'd become very outspoken. Um, I had a great story. I had overcame like Viagra uh, dependency and now I could feel and I, you know, and I became like, uh, and because there were so few men, there was like less men in this ohm community And to be fair, and I don't mean to say this, I don't know, I'm just gonna say it, like, there were a lot of guys who were kind of low status and didn't get things. And not to say that I was this awesome person, but I was like, just because it was a smaller pond, I think I just became a more valuable person. And I also was becoming very outspoken and taking leadership roles. This is when I started my first men's group, because I was like, man, like, a lot of the women have freedom in this community, but there's not a, like a safe space for men to really support each other. So I created a men's group a few months into me moving into this orgasm residence, which eventually helped me become a coach, which is why I recommend to everybody, if you want to become a coach, you don't know where to start, start a men's group. Don't charge anything. i will just give you good practice and holding space for men and helping people. Um, anyway, uh, so I, I was supporting myself doing freelance writing for like stupid advertising companies I shouldn't say stupid they were nice to me but I thought their products were dumb um, uh, but anyway my, my so the whole thing in one taste was that you live by your desire and you only do things that feel good because it's it's all based around sovereignty and this is really important for women in sexuality like uh, women were given the power to say no and say yes very clearly men were given the power to say no and say yes you weren't supposed to it's it considered like a sin if you ever did anything out of obligation and like the greatest virtue was to follow your desire all, the thing, all of which is great Right on paper, but my work became really shoddy. So because I didn't feel like doing it, and uh, so I got I got uh, fired from my freelance gig, which was supporting me and you know helping me make these uh, credit card debt payments. The next day. Oh, so this is part of my my dive into magical thinking because so I was like half in on like, do I really believe in this energy magic stuff? I don't know manifestation. I don't know, but I was desperate, which is why, which is where I think most people start to buy into magical thinking. Um, I suddenly had no income. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was in this cult, so I was like kind of disconnected. Um, so my bedmate, who eventually became my girlfriend, like the the girl who was assigned to sleep with me on on the in the bunk bed. Um, she was super into magical thinking. She she triggered the hell out of me in the beginning because she was always reading tarot cards and like telling horoscopes and like stuff that I always rolled my eyes at. She was like, "I'll help you. We'll do an abundance ritual." Um so we did like this like kind of sexual ritual like with fo- a focus on abundance and focus on like being taken care of financially. And the next morning, my cult mentor offered me a job at at to work for One Taste, which was like my dream job. So A lot of this is, you know, confirmation bias too. I'm sure that she heard I got laid off and she offered me the job through that. But this is, I'm just like trying to show how I started to buy into magical thinking because just like looking at it practically even, I know it seems weird to put practical and magic in the same sentence in the way I'm speaking about it. But like every time I bought into magical thinking, good things happened. And every time I was skeptical and trying to be realistic, nothing happened or bad things happened, which is why I started to buy into this more. The next phase of my life was working for the company. This was the maybe six months into the cult, and things were like amazing because uh, I was basically hanging out with my best friends. These people had become my best friends. Uh, you know, I went in with a in the coaching program. There's a lot of like twenty somethings. Basically, in the own community, there's a mix of like young twenty somethings who are attractive and articulate and like righteous and idealistic like myself at the time and then there were like older people with money and that was kind of like the two or like you know tech people with money like there's was, those was two kinds of people in the own community so myself and these other bohemians who i was really close with bohemian type people are you know artsy hipster folk um uh we got hired to the be part of like the new like the next tier of one taste new york so one taste had all these tiers, like since it was a matriarchal power structure, unlike Scientology or like any masculine organization, there weren't rigid titles or roles. Everything in power is determined by approval. So I always compare this to like the pecking order amongst middle school girls. Like it's not based on who's the strongest or the toughest. So there's no like, you know, but it's based on who can control the social approval. So in that way, there were tiers. I mean, obviously, the founders at the top, there was like an executive team, which were the C-level execs of the company, but they're also kind of like the disciples, because there was like this the business storefront, and there's also the cult. like they're kind of, they kind of married each other, but they're kind of separate, or they're kind of independent. And then there's like the the top level, like city leaders, and then there was like the next tier of like younger people who were going to uh, take over for the older people. And a lot of it was based like a family, this is an important aside, um, A lot of what makes cults work psychologically is that they mirror what we instinctually want from our family life nuclear families at least a lot of the anthropological evidence shows are very unnatural we were meant to live in tribes where you don't just have your mother and father but you have tons of uncles and cousins and people who maybe aren't even like that close to your blood but you're living in a tribe of 150 people or so and like everyone knows each other you have this emotional support and like uh, everyone's uh, connected and on the same page, and you're sharing resources, you're, you're emotionally supporting each other. You have a common ideology or common identity. That's what cults do for people because that's inherently how we want. Like instinctually, that's how we want to live. We don't want to live in boxes with just our spouse and our kids, but that's how society is now. Which is why, when someone is kind of lost, or like not feeling like they fit in in conventional society, something like a cult can be so can be so. Um, intoxicating or enticing because it's actually in my, in my opinion, or I, you know, it's closer to what we actually want. So especially any of us who didn't have like ideal family upbringings, the cult feels like the family you never had. This is all to say that in this, in this hierarchy of power, I had a a person who like, we we would jokingly call, like she would jokingly say like, I'm the mom to these individuals, but she actually really honestly felt like a mother figure. And you know, this is like, my actual mother is great. I love you. Um, but this mother was a kind of mother that, you know, in, in terms of my own hero's journey was like the, was the exactly the type of mentor I wanted, but she also filled this weird role of like Oedipal mother's mother. I don't know how much I'm going to get into this right now, but like that's how the power structures went. Like it felt like a family and it felt, and it was based on approval, not on, you know, no one was ever forced to do anything, but it's like you wanted to do well for who you perceived to be your parental figures, I don't know if this totally makes sense. I could probably flush this out more, but I wanted to drop this because I think it's really important for understanding how cults work because ultimately all of this, I think the story is interesting, but I'm sharing this because I know many people are in cult-like situations, both positive and negative, and most people are not aware of like the actual social dynamics they're in and their, even how their belief of reality or their perception of reality is kind of based on other people in their lives, maybe a, a parental figure or um, uh, a very influential person in your social circle or someone you follow in media. Like We don't realize how much of our perception of reality is molded by the people we consume. Anyway, um, so I, I ended up working for them and here's where the things got dark because we're now involved with money. Like I went from being someone who was sold to, like someone sold me the coaching program, my cult mom, to someone who now had the authority to sell people on other things. And I remember there was kind of like a, and I I started coaching at this time. I started coaching people for free, and then I started coaching someone for like twenty bucks an hour or something. And I uh, so I had I had a couple clients, and I remember this was kind of like a dark side moment for me, where I started to see how one tasted their sales, and they had a very effective sales team. Uh, another important aside, um, they had individuals like my cult mentor was personally responsible for over four million dollars of revenue in sales, so just like one to one sales. She took zero commission and worked on less than minimum wage because she was dedicated. And this is another thing. I mean, I spoke about this on Adam Padilla's show. I don't know if he's going to keep this in the edit, but almost everyone in the cults always thought they were doing the best by people, including myself. Like, Because there were a lot of benefits. And, like, and even, even when I would convince someone to spend a lot of money with us or, or, or quit their jobs and quit their life and move into the house, I always felt like I was doing the best by them because I had a, I had a genuinely positive experience. And because of this, because everyone was so dedicated, we had like the most—I don't know—if cu- yeah, we had the most cutthroat sales team because we all believed in the product. We really believed that this was like the the pathway to enlightenment. And in some ways, I mean, it did direct me in that direction. I'll get into the more dark side stuff in a second. But this this was a moment where I, I for the first time, was now actually seeing how they did sales and how they mixed sexuality into sales. Like they wouldn't. There was no like literal prostitution, like or uh, explicit prostitution, but there was a lot of someone sleeps with someone who has money and they genuinely do it because they want to. But honestly, a lot of us were like kind of in a free love state where like we kind of slept with a lot of people. A lot of us did at least. I shouldn't speak for everyone. And anyway, a lot of this, this there's a dynamic where a young, attractive woman, let's say would start sleeping with a, uh, a kind of unattractive or nerdy um, tech guy who had a lot of money or like a, an older guy with a lot of money. And, it wouldn't be that she was doing it for his money because she wasn't getting paid. She would like genuinely believe, like, oh, I'm, I'm, there's something beautiful about this guy and I really love him and I really want to help him. And she would say, like, you know what it would be great for you? You should really take a one taste course. Again, she's not doing this to sell him. She's doing it because she genuinely believes it's the best thing for him. And he, on the other hand, is, um, having great sex with a hot woman for the first time in his life, feeling confident in the first time in his life. He's like, well, this is, this is what, what this path is. Of course I'll spend 15 grand, 20 grand, 40 grand on the next course. Um, Because it's what, you know, men who live in scarcity, which is most men when they can feel the power of being attractive and being sexually potent and, and, you know, magnetic, it's worth more than anything. I mean, even in, in, even in the pickup community, guys would talk about this all the time. Like, learning how to connect with women was more important than money or security or social center or anything. Because I mean, if you just philosophical, anthropological aside, I mean, down to our genes, um, men are not useful if they're not attractive from a genetic level, right? Like if a guy can't contribute or if, if women don't want his sperm to be contributed into the genetic pool, he's kind of worthless. So he, he'll fight his genes and his genes will die out. So his genes, our genes have this program in us that will do anything to get laid, which is why, which is why all that stuff is important. Anyway, this was a very common dynamic in one taste. And as I started to see this stuff and I was using this way too, not always with sleeping with women, although I ended up dating someone who I genuinely genuinely loved I, you know there was nothing fake about it but there was an element of like somehow my cult mentor figure put me together with her and, and also my cult mentor would also do, do a lot of stuff where she would set me up to ohm with like wealthy women a lot of whom were attractive i didn't do it because i didn't want to and like i would stroke them they would get super turned on and then right afterwards they'd have a sales call with my cult mentor and then like, because they were so Aroused, they said yes to more things. Like there was like that kind of dark stuff, which I saw a lot. And there's a lot of and and the the moment where I I still feel guilt about. You know, I've gotten over it, but I is you know I've apologized to this person too. There was this guy, my very first coaching client, who I initially coached for free. and This is just you know for everyone who wants to coach. I went up to this guy because I, I I heard him speak at one of the cult intro events, and I was like, man, this guy is just like me two years ago. I know I can help him. It was the first time I felt like I know I can help this guy. So I went up to him. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm training to be a life coach. I think I can really help you. I want to help you for free. Would you be down to do like a like four free coaching sessions with me or something? And like maybe give me a testimony. I don't know if I asked. I just like I really genuinely felt I could help him. And um, our first session was so awkward because he didn't really know what coaching was. And I didn't really know what to do. I just knew that I wanted to help him. But anyway, over the first four sessions, I, I think I did help him a lot. Because he ended up hiring me for twenty bucks an hour later, and like he I was the first person I think what he really opened up to in a way, and you know I, I knew a lot of his he was he was very vulnerable with me, and a few months later when we were um when I was working for one taste and they're putting pressure on us to we had to make i think we had to make like at one point we had to make fifteen grand a day. Right, and we were selling these five thousand dollar programs, which is only three sales, but there's a lot of pressure because there's only so many people in the own community to sell this orgasm mastery course to. So there's all this pressure on us, and I remember this moment where I knew that because he was so entrusting of me, I could get him to spend this money. Or it wasn't even that; it was a fifteen thousand dollar coaching program. I knew I could get him to do this, and I knew that uh, my cult mom and uh, all the one taste people would like really approve of me. Not that I was getting a penny of this 15 grand, but like I would get so much approval from getting this $15,000 sale. And here's where like, you know, I went against my conscience because I started to feel that it wasn't the right thing for him. Like, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't the right thing for him. But I did this whole like theatrical charade where like we recreated that scene from the matrix with like the red pill, blue pill. And like, it was like this very theatrical thing where I was basically selling him just to get his money. I mean, I, there's a part of me that did believe it was good for him, but I wasn't very sure, and I wasn't giving him space for his free will. I have apologized to him for, for all of this since, but I got him to give me a check for this. Um, I remember him giving me the check, and I felt... Um, ...community, or like you know the staff and my cult mom and everyone, even the founder would probably hear about this and think very highly, like, oh, Ruan's, like really good at this, and I would feel that approval. But I also was like, I kind of wanted him to say no because I didn't think I wanted him to, it wasn't in his best interest, and ultimately, he ended up uh, asking for a refund. And I ripped up his check, and I felt a lot of relief. But I realized that something had changed in me because I had gone against my own conscience in that moment, and that was kind of like the moment where I was like things had looking back, things had shifted for me. I saw some other weird shit with their they would always change how they said they would pay us, like um at first they would say uh you're getting you're getting a commission for all sales so like we were making we were making 15 grand a day so it would have been a lot of money for the five of us uh you know split five ways and they would say like no it's only split this way or they would say no you're a part-time employee basically every time we asked ask about when we were getting paid they would change our, our payment structure and they would just say oh this is just how feminine communication works and like you're being too masculine that was like a that was a an insult in the in the one taste community because it was such a female centric organization if you were thinking too logically they they'd say oh you're being too masculine that was an insult right just to frame everything that's how matriarchal this situation was and it was very masculinity shaming um ironically i think because of that that's how i actually was able to discover my own authentic masculinity but i'll leave that for later too I just want to finish my first year. I think I'm going to end the video in like 10 minutes because I don't want this to go on forever. I'll do part two next week, but just to finish the whole thing here with my first year. So I'm like seven months into this orgasm residence, maybe two months into working for the company and we still haven't gotten paid. <clears throat> and finally I was like, I got to put my foot down because every time I brought up money, they would always, twist it around in some way where I felt like stupid for asking like, um, like my cult mom once I was like asking for this commission that was supposed to be paid to me. And my cult mom was like, listen, Ron, you need to learn how to speak about money without all this emotional charge before you talk to me. And I was like, Oh, sorry. I, I didn't realize Because like, you know, she had given me so much legit. It's, it's important for me to frame this. She'd given me so, so much spot on, legitimate, empowering advice over these seven months that it was the halo effect to use Charlie persuasion principle. Like I trusted her to, um, uh, I trusted her because she had, she genuinely helped me with so many things with my sex life, with my confidence, with my self expression, with my leadership abilities. Like, she really was one of the best mentors and the best teachers I've ever had. Now, I still say this to this day like, most influential people. Shout out to her. I'm not going to say her name, but like, best. Uh, anyway, so when she would say things like this to me, even though in retrospect it sounds crazy that I bought into it, it was like, oh, maybe she's right. Maybe I did. Maybe I do have some weird thing about... And I did have shame around money because I had none. And I, maybe I, ha, I do have this weird way of asking for money. And maybe she was actually telling the truth, but she would use it as a way to deflect um, my request. And it's like two months later, we still haven't gotten paid. There's like five of us on the team or, or four of us. One one guy quit. The only other guy quit, so it was me and three women for a while. Um, and uh, finally, I put my foot down. I was like, because I had no money, I was still paying them rent, right? We all paid uh, 490 bucks for rent, which was ridiculously cheap in new york but we were sharing uh three bedrooms with 12 people you know um we also paid 350 a month to pay for our food so for 840 a month we had anyway just people are interested in economics sometimes so i had all my food and rent paid for for 840 a month which is amazing for new york city but i didn't even have that money because i was working 100 hours a week for them they didn't pay me anything um finally i just put my foot down and raise this stink about it because also a bit of an aside um I don't know if I'm going to get into this, but I owed the Marine Corps money because I did officer candidate school, and they gave me money for college, and I didn't actually serve. So anyway, um, I owed them money. Anyway, I, I had a lot of money stuff. It all happened at the same time, which was kind of synchronistic. I put my foot down. I got publicly shamed for asking about money. I was um, they said I was I didn't have any faith, or I was doing this all for my ego, or I was uh, perpetuating money scarcity um because i was asking for money and i was i, I remember all, everyone all, all of them and these these were my family you know this was my cult mom these were like the girls were like my sisters even though i was like sexual i know it sounds weird but like i felt they felt like family even though we were sexual um and they were all sitting on a couch together i was sitting on the floor and they're all like laughing at me for my money shame they're like aha Ruwan is like so small-minded like he, he cares about money still because like they were so into this like magical world that and I, I believe there's a legitimate way to look at the world where like money is just an agreement too, right? Like there is that too, which is why it was easy to buy into these things. Like money is a collective agreement. Like there's nothing, a Bitcoin isn't a thing. Like even a, a, a dollar bill is just, we just agree it's worth something. But they take it to the next level where like a Ruan is small-minded because he still cares about the number in his bank account. Um, anyway, I got publicly shamed. I still raise a stank about it. Uh, there was an individual on the One Day staff who happened to be a man who he didn't he didn't speak up for me, but he kind of like was like, okay, we're, we'll get you paid something. Um, but then I got fired because I became a liability because the whole thing in this in this world because everything in a cult is a collective agreement. Um, uh, if if uh, if someone has a, an opposing viewpoint and they have influence, they have to be pushed out, otherwise that'll infect. The other people. It's just like uh, it's just like with anything. I could get into this. Maybe in part two, I'll, I'll really dig into the collective re- reality, uh, collective consciousness creation. Um, but that, that's why you know that's why cults are built this way. So like I could not be on the one-taste staff anymore while criticizing the way they did business because that could infect other people. And then suddenly, the the cohesion of the group and the and the co-created reality was gone. So I got kicked off. Um, and there's actually a point where. It, it's just a, a micro scene. Like I I and I made a video a while ago about trying to kill myself when I was fifteen and being depressed. During this shaming night, I actually thought about jumping off the roof. And this was like a like a flash of madness. I wasn't actually suicidal, but it was like there was a way that they created this the reality where if you weren't with them, you felt super alone because Here I was being shamed by my family, my cult family. I was by myself as the only person in the residence who cared about money for some reason. But I also couldn't talk to my other friends and my real family because they wouldn't understand the whole situation because I'd have to have them listen to this entire podcast to understand who I was or what I was doing or why I was there. So I was the only person in the whole world who who could empathize with me. And that isolation is what depression is. It's like being in your own reality is, is the scariest thing. It's like, I mean, a lot of uh, drug addiction comes from this and like, like, you know, like in 12 step, they call like the spiritual malady, um, you know, being isolated, being separate. This is the absolute worst experience, which is why people will, would rather kill their physical body, kill themselves than be in this isolated reality or they'd rather ruin themselves with substances or, or do anything to have them escape from this feeling of isolation. It's the fucking worst. Cults, on the other hand, uh, feel so good because they give you that, they prevent you from isolation. They, feel, they allow you to feel connected to the group. The 12-step program also does this, which is why they are one of the more effective treatments. Anyway. We'll get into that. I have criticisms with twelve step as well. Um, just to finish my first year after my, f- so I got shamed, but I was still in the one taste community. And twelve months had gone by. At the end of this twelve months, I had, I had originally made made this a one year experiment. But I was so, I was so changed. My reality, my perception of the of the world was so changed after twelve months of being in this in this alternate universe, that. Um, I no longer gave a shit about my experiment. I was like, this is just how I live now. And I happened to be, I happened to have like, I don't know, maybe 20 grand in credit card debt at this point. But I was like, whatever, money isn't real. Um, but I didn't, I knew I didn't, I knew that being a part of the One Taste business was um, was too compromising to my morals, to my conscience. So I decided that I was, uh, my New Year's resolution on January or you know New Year's into 2014 was I was gonna start my own orgasm residence and it was going to be based on all the virtues without any of the negatives. And uh, I just, I, I rounded up a group of people who felt the same way in the Ohm community. And even though I had no money, I was in a ton of debt, somehow we did, we did manifest the perfect five bedroom house, which we eventually turned into what was eventually known as the Brooklyn Ohm House. Uh, you know, it was in another orgasm residence. And I'm going to leave that for part two. That was, that, that was my first year in the cult. I'm going to leave the rest for part two. Where I became a mini cult leader in Brooklyn and eventually was excommunicated from the greater cults. But this has been an hour already. So <clears throat> um yeah, I don't know. I didn't get any comments. I think with the Facebook Lives, there's always a delay. If you have any questions, if or if you just found this interesting, you know, I'd appreciate it if you let me know because you know, I am talking into space right now. Um and maybe uh for part two, I'll I'll you know there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff I could have said for part one. I can I can know what to focus on more. There was stuff with, um, you know, I didn't talk about my personal relationships too much. There was also some side characters that I met who taught me generative trance and like other sexual stuff. And I did ayahuasca for the first time in, in during this period and the second time during this period. Um, and I obviously have a lot more to say on cult psychology. So I might, I don't know what I'll focus on for part two. So I guess just, I appreciate if you let me know what parts were interesting and i'll focus more on that when i speak about part two in the sex cult where the victim became the you know the hero stayed along stayed around long enough to become the villain because i definitely became a bit of a villain in um in my second part of the cult anyway thanks for watching final announcements in case you missed the beginning i think this is going to be the new time for these live videos uh Apologies again for skipping out on three weeks. I was traveling at the change of time, but also I was confronted by the topic, I think. I was a little nervous talking about it. Uh, oh, I mentioned arousal control, I think. If you're interested, arousalcontrolseekers.com. What else did I mention today? Um, I don't remember. Anyway, you know who I am probably. Thanks for listening. See you later. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's all.